0: book one chapter two section five of the new idealism by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine book one the critical preparations chapter two the new realism section five objections for after all the new realism has a suicidal subtlety if it is taken literally and you cannot imagine that its intention is to be taken otherwise it ends by disintegrating the world in thought thought that realism will not allow to build up even its own universe has this power to dismember and pull down taken literally realism is committed to the doctrine of external relations and external relations taken literally do not really relate they are cut off from all possibility of relating not only by an endless regress fatal to their reality but by their hard and cruel indifference to their terms at the start they are only contemplated as relating and if realities are contemplated as doing what they do not really do then contrary to the first principles of realism they appear as they are not and we do not know them as they are nor is contradiction altogether avoided. if the new realist takes exception to the absolute idealist's absolute on the grounds that it is related, the idealist can object to the realist's relative on the grounds that it is absolute. the terms of his relations and his relations themselves are, in the hard recalcitrance of their reality, so many little absolutes. take for example the subject and its predicates. The new realist has a special spite against this innocent relation you would have thought that if ever there was a clear case of an internal relation securely grounded in the nature of its terms it was this but no the same predicates are related to different subjects and the same subjects to different predicates and if we were once to admit that all these relations were internal and securely attached to their terms we should have that unity indifference which is so abhorrent to the realist with his pluralism the pluralistic realist if he is to be consistent cannot really affirm that the rose is red or that it is colored only that it has a red color for if terms have reality apart from their relations then the red of the rose and the red of the pillar box will be the same detached reality and he will be affirming that both the rose and the pillar-box are it, that they are, so far, the same thing. He can only save himself by greater precision, by saying that the rose is damask red and the pillar-box scarlet. In this case, the predicates have turned out to be different, after all, but his trouble is only postponed till the moment when he comes across two subjects with the same predicate. And this will hold good of all the qualities of a thing. Note. Of course, they never will have the numerically same real quality, but neither will they on the idealist hypothesis. End note. To be sure, even supposing their red to be the same red, the rose and the pillar-box will have other predicates that you might think would distinguish them sufficiently. The rose has a smell that the pillar-box hasn't. They have different shapes, and the pillar-box is a useful public servant in government employ, which the rose is not. But these differences will not avail them anything for they are all the predicates of other subjects too the pillar box in russell square is not the only public servant in government employ it is not even the only pillar box and my ceiling wax has its color and my studio stove its shape and again the differences between my stove and the pillar box are the predicates of other subjects the attachment of predicates to subjects is the only thing in the realist world that would appear not to be absolute but mark what follows if the relation between the thing and its qualities be not grounded in the nature of its terms we cannot in this case break the thing up into its qualities we cannot take it as the sum of them or as the relation itself for the relation is outside the thing and the qualities therefore the thing and its qualities fall apart and we have the thing in itself all over again that thing in itself whose existence new realism strenuously denies whatever else relations may do they do not relate the universe is a collection an assemblage of entities hard and recalcitrant as atoms it is not even a collection or an assemblage since that implies a relation that relates these entities are not even just one damned thing after another as their sequence would constitute a relation that relates they are in their ultimate analysis irreducible atoms repugnant to all relations but as the universe certainly presents a semblance of relatedness the new realist is landed in the very last place where he would wish to be in a world of appearances supported or apparently supported by a vast number of things in themselves distinguished only by those positions in space and time which constitute their numerical identity i do not see how on any thoroughgoing theory of external relations he can avoid this catastrophe and when you come to the subject-object relation the consequences are tremendous here if anywhere the relation must be strictly external if realism is to stand that is to say if you take the subject and object as your terms and knowing as your relation knowing will not be grounded in the nature of either subject or object subject and object alike will make no difference to knowing though if we take dr moore's reservation into account knowing may make a difference to the terms it may make a difference to the object then as well as to the subject but this is just what cannot happen on a realist hypothesis so that dr moore's reservation which rested on the distinction between relations and relational properties cannot in this case apply subject object and the relation of knowing will be three hard distinct mutually repellent entities and it is hard to see how on the new realist theory they ever could have contrived to come together nor are you a bit better off if you take the form of this relation to be the subject's knowing of the object or reduced to the simplest possible terms contemplation of object when whatever mysterious relation of may be it is equally indifferent to contemplation or to object on the other hand once recognize that terms are sympathetic to their relations once admit that it does make a difference to the object to be known and to the subject to know and you have let in the thin end of the idealist's wedge if knowing is not grounded in the nature of the object, it will at least be grounded in a relational property of the object. And this can only mean that there is something in the object by reason of which it is known. It has a side by which knowing takes it. But this relational property, so far from being the only property of the object which is known, is precisely that property which is not known since it is impossible to mark down the property in question and say it is this rather than that and supposing all the properties of the object to be known except this one property which makes it known each of those properties will have its own relational property which makes it known so that we cannot think of this particular relational property as being one property of the object among others but as something pertaining to or inherent in the object as a whole and in each one of its properties and that is as good as saying we cannot think of it as a property at all but as a relation grounded in the nature of its terms which brings us straight to the idealist position that the nature of known things is to be known in other words that being known makes a difference to things or you may knock out the term nature as introducing an unnecessary complication and say simply the relation is grounded in the object and the being of objects is to be known but modify the position in the interests of realism and say things are and are such that they are known draw a hard and fast line between the are and the are such and you are landed again with an unknown thing in itself carry on the process with each of the are suchnesses and distinguish between their being and their suchness and you are only multiplying things in themselves within things you can only avoid the conclusion by regarding consciousness as an empty transparency and you are then faced with a difficulty if consciousness is an empty transparency that makes no difference to its objects its objects presumably must make a difference to it but it is hard to see how anything can make a difference to an empty transparency either objects are the content of consciousness or they are not if they are, they cannot be said to be either outside or independent of consciousness. If they are not, consciousness remains an empty, meaningless transparency. Meaningless, because if it had meaning, its meaning must profoundly modify its objects. And if you contend that objects themselves have meaning, you must either distinguish between the meaning and the objects, or not distinguish. If you do not distinguish, you have no business to talk about meaning at all if meaning is to have any meaning it must be distinguishable if you then say distinguishing that objects have meaning for consciousness which they have not apart from it you are again admitting that consciousness makes a difference to objects consciousness will invade them at all points of meaning if you simply say that consciousness adds its own meaning to the object you are again carrying consciousness over into the objective world but the crucial discrepancies are those which involve space and time. Even Mr. Bertrand Russell admits a difficulty here. Quote It is said, not wholly without plausibility, that these different shapes and different colours cannot coexist simultaneously in the same place, and cannot therefore both be constituents of the physical world. This argument, I must confess, appeared to me until recently to be irrefutable. End quote. He gets over it by referring the discrepant appearances to different spaces. Not that they have a permanent and independent existence there. Quote, sense data probably never persist unchanged after ceasing to be sense data. End quote. That is to say, after ceasing to be perceived. Their dependence, however, is not on the mind. The subjectivity they suggest is physiological subjectivity. That is causal dependence on the sense organs nerves or brain but physiological subjectivity though compatible with pious realism is no better than any other combined with the theory of real private spaces it has difficulties of its own for example you and i are sitting in two opposite chairs naively one would suppose that the part of space from which you see me is the part of space at which i see you on mr russell's theory they belong to different and private spaces which are not mental what really happens when we exchange chairs naively one would suppose that our bodies on which the appearances in each private space depend have transferred themselves to each other's private spaces which is absurd clearly each body has changed its place within its own private space but the chairs have not changed places clearly then we do not see the same chairs the chair that you are now sitting on is not the same chair i was sitting on a moment ago there will be as many chairs and as many rooms as there are inhabitants of a room now the idealist is equally committed to this multitude of chairs and rooms though not of physiological chairs and rooms he is therefore not entitled to complain of the multiplicity but he is entitled to ask if the chairs are private because physiological how about the private spaces space cannot be physiological yet if space is private it must be subjective in another sense it must be somehow personal therefore it cannot be physical and if it isn't physiological it must be mental the idealist can object with reason to the physiological relation it is a subversion of the real relation of dependence for private space is part of one all-embracing perspective space the place my body occupies at any given time is part of my private space. How then can the change in my body account for the existence of the whole spatial show of my private world on which its existence is dependent? It is one complex of my sense data. How can it account for the whole system of my sense data which contains it? My body occupies space which, however private, is still a part of perspective space in a relation such that if there were no perspective space there would be no private space how can it account for sense data conditioned by the space it presupposes it is itself such a sense datum further its changes presuppose and depend on the whole system of physics which in its turn presupposes and is determined by the whole system of the one all-embracing space and the one all-embracing time in the sense that all objects of physics are objects in space and time mr russell says that if my body were not there the whole show perceived in my private space would not be there whereas clearly if my private space were not there my body would not be there either the idealist avoids this awkwardness by packing my body and my private space into my mind and referring all the causality there is in the affair to an ultimate consciousness which contains all space and all time if on the contrary you say that meaning distinguished and yet inseparable from the objects that have it is part of the outside pattern of the universe then once more consciousness is a meaningless transparency with all the awkwardnesses that attach to a meaningless transparency i shall not insist on the difficulty of discriminating between subjective and objective sensory affections for the simple reason that new realism does not admit the distinction since the new realist regards sound and color heat and cold pain and fatigue as outside objects equally independent of sensation it is useless to call his attention to their habit of merging into each other as if this made any difference to their status i will only point out that new realism leaves no room on the hairline margin of consciousness for any subject of affections at all as long as you profess to distinguish between affection and consciousness of affection the whole world of the self beyond its blank on looking has been hauled over to the outside it should not be forgotten that the main charge brought by realism against idealism is that in its subjective form it annihilates the cosmos known to have existed before consciousness while its absolute form is equally fatal to the appearances of that cosmos its sounds colours smells and densities appearances which realism affirms to be realities but on the realist theory appearances are equally bound to disappear not because of the absence of sensation but because of the absence of sense organs the fulgurating sensa are the result of change in the cerebral cortex set up by the contact of matter in motion with the appropriate sense organs which pass on their shock no sense organs no fulgurations no heat of sun no cold of glaciers no thunder of surf on paleozoic beaches no green of grass and leaves in paleozoic forests no wet no dry no light no darkness no distinction between sea and land or night and day the sensibles simply go trying to pass on their shocks without anybody there to be shocked of course if it was so it was so it can't be helped and if we don't like it we must stand it but the new realist should be the last to raise a cry against the idealist on behalf of the solar system and paleozoic earth there is only one hope for them and that is the idealist's assumption of an enduring supercosmic spirit in whose consciousness they have still endured or consider the nature of the transaction we are to suppose that neural change in my private and personal body is the spark that fires the fulguration of the sensa, that makes the cosmos with its system of sensibles burst forth in color and sound and touch and taste and smell the visible audible palpable and smellable properties of the world are thus the offspring of changes in my body which is itself the offspring of that world that is to say we have changes in the subsequently existing part an organism narrowly limited in space and time giving rise to extended aspects of the previously existing whole inconceivable when we consider that the neural motions involved are themselves continuations of the motions of the larger world inconceivable if we assume the absolute outside reality of the body and its world and whether contemplation occur inside or outside nature inconceivable reality's final leap from the unconscious to consciousness not inconceivable if the whole system of events occurs through and in a consciousness presumed to be adequate to the display the hypothesis may not be capable of downright a posteriori proof but at any rate physiological subjectivism raises more problems than idealism leaves unsolved and to be serious with the new realist theory of memory and imagination is to be landed in difficulties even less remote for consider once more professor laird's mr smith and his matterhorn the matterhorn is an absolute outside independent reality in an absolute outside independent space and time Independent in the sense that they have nothing to do with either an absolute consciousness or with Smith and his consciousness, except in so far as Smith contemplates the Matterhorn and his ascent of it. Consider that, though Smith may not remember every detail of the Matterhorn and his ascent, yet as much as he does remember is literally so much of the Matterhorn and of his ascent. In memory, Smith is contemplating the Matterhorn itself as it existed when he climbed it. He is, then, contemplating an existence which has a real, definite, unalterable position in space and time, an existence immensely far removed from Smith in his present moment, and the smoke room at Surbiton where he does his remembering. But we are asked to believe that Smith sees the real Matterhorn, the Matterhorn itself, in a space somewhere between his armchair and the smoke room door, where, in fact, Smith's bureau is standing ten to one that is where smith seated in his armchair will locate his matterhorn he may perhaps remembering his geography give his mind's eye a southeastward turn but that only brings the matterhorn across the top pane of smith's bow window at the farthest stretch smith will see it hovering about outside on his lawn above the pampas grass useless to say that time divides these spaces time only makes the queer business queerer besides the marvel of this immensely distant real mountain disporting itself within a few feet of smith's armchair you have its past telescoping into smith's present impossible to believe that the matterhorn smith remembers is the matterhorn itself when it is behaving so unlike itself and smith can play tricks with the matterhorn of his memory that he could never play with a matterhorn of his perception he can tear it from its base in switzerland and plump it down in venice in the middle of the grand canal he can plant saint sophia on the top of it that he can only do these things with a visible matterhorn does not since he is dealing with the matterhorn itself make his performance essentially less remarkable and though you may say that it is smith's imagination and not his memory that is now at work it is smith's memory that provides his imagination with its material which is again the matterhorn itself. There is, I believe, a way in which Smith can do all these things, a way in which he can both remember and imagine the matterhorn itself without the intervention of a single image. But it is not the way of realism, which supposes the matterhorn to exist in absolute space and time outside and independent not only of Smith's contemplating mind, but of all the consciousness in the universe. End of Book 1, Chapter 2. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.